This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of carpal tunnel syndrome from the hand section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Carpal tunnel syndrome is a compressive neuropathy of the median nerve at the level of the wrist. Diagnosis is made by clinical signs and symptoms like night pain, hand weakness slash clumsiness, numbness in the median nerve distribution, and positive provocative tests, for example, Tennell's and Durkin's tests. Treatment is generally conservative with night splints and injections with carpal tunnel release reserved for refractory cases. Now let's get into the episode. With respect to the epidemiology, as far as incidence, carpal tunnel syndrome affects 0.1 to 10% of the general population. Risk factors include female sex, obesity, pregnancy, hypothyroidism, rheumatoid arthritis, advanced age, chronic renal failure, smoking, alcoholism, repetitive motion activities, mucopolysaccharidosis, and mucolipidosis. Moving on to etiology, as far as the pathophysiology of carpal tunnel syndrome, the mechanism involves exposure to repetitive motions and vibrations, as well as certain athletic activities like cycling, tennis, and throwing. In terms of pathoanatomy, the most common causes of nerve compression include a pathologic or inflamed synovium, which is the most common cause of idiopathic carpal tunnel syndrome. Other common causes of nerve compression include repetitive motions in a patient with normal anatomy, as well as a space-occupying lesion, for example, gout. Associated conditions with carpal tunnel syndrome include diabetes mellitus, hypothyroidism, rheumatoid arthritis, pregnancy, and amyloidosis. Now, let's talk about some relevant anatomy. We'll go over the carpal tunnel borders, carpal tunnel contents, as well as the branches of the median nerve. So the carpal tunnel borders include the scaphoid tubercle and trapezium radially, the hook of hamate and pisiform ulnarly, the transverse carpal ligament palmarly, which represents the roof of the carpal tunnel, and the proximal carpal row dorsally, which is the floor of the carpal tunnel. The carpal tunnel contents include the four flexor digitorum superficialis or FDS tendons, four flexor digitorum profundus or FDP tendons, the flexor pollicis longus or FPL, which is the most radial structure, and the median nerve. Moving on to the branches of the median nerve, the ones to know include the palmar cutaneous branch of the median nerve and the recurrent motor branch of the median nerve. The palmar cutaneous branch of the median nerve lies between the palmaris longus and the FCR at the level of the wrist flexion crease. With respect to the recurrent motor branch of the median nerve, know that 50% are extraligamentous with recurrent innervation, 30% are subligamentous with recurrent innervation, and 20% are transligamentous with recurrent innervation. Be sure to cut the transverse ligament far ulnarly to avoid cutting it if the nerve is transligamentous. Finally, know that the carpal tunnel is the narrowest at the level of the hook of the hamate. Now, let's talk about the presentation of carpal tunnel syndrome. Symptoms include numbness and tingling in the radial three and a half digits, clumsiness, as well as pain and paresthesias that awaken a patient at night. On physical exam in these patients, you may find thenar atrophy, a self-administered hand diagram, which is the most specific test with 76% specificity for carpal tunnel syndrome. Physical exam should also include the carpal tunnel compression test, otherwise known as Durkin's test, which is the most sensitive test to diagnose carpal tunnel syndrome. It is performed by pressing the thumbs over the carpal tunnel and holding pressure for 30 seconds. Onset of pain or paresthesia in the median nerve distribution within 30 seconds is a positive result. Phalen's test is wrist volar flexion against gravity for approximately 60 seconds, which produces symptoms. Know that this is less sensitive than the Durkin compression test. Tennell's test is a provocative test performed by tapping the median nerve over the volar carpal tunnel. 
SEMS-Weinstein testing is the most sensitive sensory test for detecting early carpal tunnel syndrome and measures a single nerve fiber innervating a receptor or group of receptors. Finally, you should also perform an innervation density test, which involves static and moving two-point discrimination. This measures multiple overlapping of different sensory units and complex cortical integration. The test is a good measure for assessing functional nerve regeneration after nerve repair. Moving on to imaging, know that radiographs are not necessary for diagnosis. Moving on to studies in the workup of carpal tunnel syndrome, know that the diagnostic criteria includes numbness and tingling in the median nerve distribution, nocturnal numbness, weakness and or atrophy of the thenar musculature, positive Tenel sign, positive Phelan's test, and loss of two-point discrimination. Moving on to EMG and nerve conduction velocity, a quick overview is that it provides objective evidence of a compressive neuropathy. This is valuable in work comp patients with secondary gain issues. However, it is not needed to establish a diagnosis, as this diagnosis is clinical. A nerve conduction velocity will show prolonged latencies or slowing of nerve conduction velocity, as well as slower conduction velocities. So prolonged latencies of nerve conduction velocity include a distal sensory latency of greater than 3.5 milliseconds and motor latencies of greater than 4.5 milliseconds. With respect to slower conduction velocities, know that a velocity of less than 52 meters per second is abnormal. And also remember that slower conduction velocity is less specific than prolonged latencies. Know that nerve conduction velocities represent only the largest diameter myelinated fibers in the nerve. Electromyography, or EMG, tests the electrical activity of individual muscle fibers and motor units, and it details insertional and spontaneous activity. Potential pathologic findings include increased insertional activity, sharp waves, fibrillations, fasciculations, and complex repetitive discharges. Know that electrodiagnostic study results are associated with outcomes or prognosis after carpal tunnel surgery. Specifically, patients with a severe EMG-slash-nerve conduction velocity findings tend to improve less than patients with middle-range findings. Moving on to histology, know that nerve histology is characterized by edema, fibrosis, and vascular sclerosis, which are the most common findings. Nerve histology is also characterized by scattered lymphocytes and amyloid deposits shown with special stains in some cases. The differential diagnosis for carpal tunnel syndrome include AIN compressive neuropathy, pronator syndrome, ulnar tunnel syndrome, and cervical radiculopathy. As far as the diagnosis of carpal tunnel syndrome, as we mentioned, this is a clinical diagnosis, and you can also use EMG slash nerve conduction studies. Diagnosis can be made purely based on history and physical exam and can be confirmed with EMG and nerve conduction studies. Treatment of carpal tunnel syndrome can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes NSAIDs, night splints, and activity modifications, and this is indicated as the first line of treatment. As far as the modalities, night splints are good for patients with nocturnal symptoms only. Activity modifications will avoid aggravating activity. Steroid injections are indicated as an adjunctive non-operative treatment. This provides diagnostic utility in clinically and electromyographically equivocal cases. Moving on to outcomes, know that 80% of steroid injections have transient improvement of symptoms. Of these, 20% remain symptom-free at one year. Know that failure to improve after injection is a poor prognostic factor. Surgery is less effective in these patients. Operative options include carpal tunnel release, which is indicated for failure of non-operative treatment, including steroid injections. Know that temporary improvement with steroid injections is a good prognostic factor that the patient will have a good result with surgery. Another indication for carpal tunnel release is acute carpal tunnel syndrome following ORIF of a distal radius fracture. 
As far as outcomes of carpal tunnel release, know that pinch strength should return in six weeks. Grip strength is expected to return to 100% preoperative levels by 12 weeks post-op. Know that the rate of continued symptoms at 1 plus years is 2% in moderate and 20% in severe carpal tunnel syndrome. Know that there are also improved patient-reported outcomes with surgery at 6 and 12 months as compared to splinting, NSAID slash therapy, and a single steroid injection. Finally, revision for carpal tunnel release for incomplete release is indicated when there's failure to improve following primary surgery, and incomplete release is the most common reason. In terms of outcomes, know that 25% will have complete relief after revision carpal tunnel release, 50% will have some relief, and 25% will have no relief. Now, let's go over some surgical techniques in a bit more detail. Specifically, we'll talk about open carpal tunnel release and endoscopic carpal tunnel release. So starting with open carpal tunnel release, in terms of antibiotics, prophylactic antibiotics, systemic or local, are not indicated for patients undergoing a clean elective carpal tunnel release. As far as the surgical technique for open carpal tunnel release, know that internal neurolysis, tenosynovectomy, and antibrachial fascia release do not improve outcomes. Know that Guillain's canal does not need to be released as it is decompressed by the carpal tunnel release. Finally, know that a lengthened repair of the transverse carpal ligament is only required if a flexor tendon repair is also performed. This allows wrist immobilization in flexion postoperatively. Complications of an open carpal tunnel release correlates most closely with the experience of the surgeon. Complications can include an incomplete release, progressive thenar atrophy due to injury to an unrecognized transligamentous motor branch of the median nerve, and lumbrical muscle weakness secondary to neuropraxia of the proper palmar digital nerve to the index finger. Finally, moving on to endoscopic carpal tunnel release, the advantage of this approach is accelerated rehabilitation. Long-term results are the same as open carpal tunnel release. Note that with respect to endoscopic carpal tunnel release, the most common complication is an incomplete division of the transverse carpal ligament. Finally, let's end this review session talking about the prognosis of carpal tunnel syndrome. So good prognostic indicators include night symptoms, short incisions, relief of symptoms with steroid injections, and when there is no improvement in symptoms related to an incomplete release of the transverse carpal ligament that is discovered. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. During an open carpal tunnel release, the recurrent motor branch of the median nerve is iatrogenically transected. What postoperative disability would be expected, and what is the most likely way this disability arose? And the choices are 1. Inability to adduct the thumb, secondary to cutting the transverse carpal ligament radially, 2. Inability to oppose the thumb, secondary to cutting the transverse carpal ligament ulnarly. 3. Inability to oppose the thumb, secondary to cutting the transverse carpal ligament radially. 4. Inability to abduct the thumb palmarly, secondary to cutting the transverse carpal ligament ulnarly. And 5. Inability to extend the thumb, secondary to cutting the transverse carpal ligament ulnarly. The correct answer to this question is 3. Inability to oppose the thumb secondary to cutting the transverse carpal ligament radially. So the recurrent motor branch of the median nerve innervates the opponent's pollicis, which is responsible for thumb opposition. Know that cutting the transverse carpal ligament radially increases the risk of transection in cases of transligamentous recurrent motor branch variation. To quickly review, the recurrent motor branch of the median nerve innervates the majority of the thenar musculature, including the opponent's pollicis abductor pollicis brevis, and most of the flexor pollicis brevis. 
There are several described variations in the path of the recurrent branch of the median nerve, of which the three most common are the extraligamentous, subligamentous, and transligamentous variations. While reports vary regarding the exact incidence of each variant, the variation that poses the most risk for transection occurs when this nerve branch passes through the actual fibers of the transverse carpal ligament that is a transligamentous variation. The recurrent branch originates from the central and radial aspect of the median nerve, and thus the transverse carpal ligament should be cut ulnarly to minimize the risk of transection. Kozin dissected 101 cadavers to describe the anatomy of the recurrent branch of the median nerve. In his series, 7% of the specimens had recurrent branches that were transligamentous, and none of the median nerves had an origin of the recurrent branch that was ulnar. Kozin concluded that the transligamentous variation of the recurrent motor branch of the median nerve was rare. Siverhus et al. dissected 72 cadaveric specimens to describe the anatomy of the recurrent branch of the median nerve. In their series, 86% of the specimens had classic recurrent motor branch anatomy, while 14% had recurrent motor nerve branches that were transligamentous anywhere from 2 to 6 millimeters proximal to the distal edge. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, thumb adduction is performed by the adductor pollicis, which is innervated by the deep branch of the ulnar nerve. Answer 2, while the recurrent branch of the median nerve does innervate the opponent's pollicis, which permits thumb opposition, Cutting the transverse carpal ligament ulnarly minimizes the risk of transection. Answer 4. While the recurrent branch of the median nerve does innervate the abductor pollicis brevis, which permits palmar thumb abduction, cutting the transverse carpal ligament ulnarly minimizes the risk of transection. Finally, answer 5. Thumb extension is performed by extensor pollicis brevis and longus, both of which are innervated by the posterior interosseous nerve. And moving on to the final question. A 65-year-old man complains of numbness and tingling in the thumb, index, and long fingers of his dominant hand for three months. An EMG demonstrates prolonged median sensory latency and low-amplitude compound muscle action potentials with fibrillations in the abductor pollicis brevis. What is the most appropriate treatment option and the rate of continued symptoms at one year after treatment? And the choices are 1. Splinting and corticosteroids with 5% continued symptoms at one year after treatment. 2. Open carpal tunnel release with 20% continued symptoms at one year after treatment. 3. Splinting and corticosteroids with 30% continued symptoms at one year after treatment. 4. Endoscopic carpal tunnel release with 2% continued symptoms at one year after treatment. And 5. Open carpal tunnel release with 5% continued symptoms at one year after treatment. The correct answer to this question is to open carpal tunnel release with 20% continued symptoms at one year after treatment. So the most appropriate treatment of carpal tunnel syndrome with EMG evidence of denervation is surgical release. The rate of residual symptoms at one year is approximately 20%. To quickly review, the American Association of Electrodiagnostic Medicine Criteria delineates carpal tunnel syndrome severity by EMG. Mild carpal tunnel syndrome is purely sensory. Moderate disease demonstrates prolonged sensory and motor latencies. Severe disease progresses to involve muscle denervation. Mild and moderate carpal tunnel syndrome may be treated with carpal tunnel release following failure of non-operative treatment. However, early operative treatment is supported for severe disease to limit further denervation. Patients experience significant improvement in symptoms. However, recovery is prolonged and persistent symptoms may be present in approximately 20% at one year. Cronledge et al., 
compared changes in numbness and pain following carpal tunnel release in 47 patients with moderate symptoms and 48 patients with severe carpal tunnel syndrome diagnosed on EMG. At one year or longer, 2% of the patients with moderate disease had continued symptoms compared to 19% of patients with severe carpal tunnel syndrome. They concluded that patients with severe carpal tunnel syndrome experienced significant reductions in symptoms following carpal tunnel release. However, recovery may be prolonged or incomplete at one year post-op. Ono et al. performed a systematic review of 25 studies reporting outcomes for the treatment of carpal tunnel syndrome. They noted an increasing trend towards recommending earlier surgery for carpal tunnel syndrome with or without median nerve denervation. They conclude that this differed from the 2007 AAOS guidelines, which recommended early surgery only in the setting of muscle denervation. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1 and answer 3, splinting and corticosteroids, are incorrect as the patient has muscle denervation on EMG. This is severe carpal tunnel syndrome and surgical intervention is indicated. Persistent symptoms occur in approximately 20% of patients despite surgical intervention at one year post-op. Answer 4, endoscopic carpal tunnel release with 2% continued symptoms at one year after treatment. And answer 5, open carpal tunnel release with 5% continued symptoms at one year after treatment are both incorrect as surgical intervention is warranted. However, persistent symptoms occur in approximately 20% of patients at one year. That's all for this review about carpal tunnel syndrome. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.